What have you guys been eating? Well, thanks for asking, Parth. My most recent meal has been some tomato soup and some grilled cheese that my mother prepared for me. Zach? Uh, Well, I recently woke up, haven't had a chance to get breakfast yet, but I have consumed a large quantity of coffee, so I'm here for this. Let it be known that it is 2 p.m. It's 2.21. What time did you wake up, and do you feel like a leech to society? I woke up around 1 1 p.m. I don't feel like a leech to society because I'm rolling with the quarantine punches. Now, you might be wondering, would I have woken up at this time? Were we not in quarantine? And the answer is yes. So, Parth, let's let's just get this over with. Have you have you eaten anything? I, I had a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Oh, Parth, you know, just from the looks of you, I would think that your body is like a perfect machine, and it requires no fuel and and produces no waste. I, I am. You're a self-sustaining organism. Well, when people look at me, they go, "That's a person that eats well," you know. <laughs> or just like, who's that handsome guy? Exactly. That's what I tend to think. Zach, when you see Parth, what do you think? I would assume he photosynthesized. Thus explaining his bronzer complexion. Anyways, on to the show. Welcome to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week we're going to be talking about Star Wars, The Last Jedi. And with us we have storyboard artist Kurt Vanderbast, all the way from the Czech Republic. I'm I'm just going to give a little IMDb synopsis. Rey develops her newly discovered abilities with the guidance of Luke Skywalker, who is unsettled by the strength of her powers. Meanwhile, the Resistance prepares for battle with the First Order. We have a guest this episode. Introduce yourself. Oh, uh, hi. Uh, my name's Zach Basile, uh, and I'm, I'm excited and looking forward to talk about The Last Jedi. How, how, how'd you come to be here? Uh, I am longtime friend of Trent Algare. Not that long. Short-time friend of Trent Algare. Yeah. Um, I very recently, within the past six minutes, met Parth. Um, but he seems like a good guy. So, eh. eh, okay. You're not like head over heels though. Like you're still like more like a Trent fan. Our, a lot of our audience has been dividing into like Faction. pro Trent or or pro Parth, and I need to know that you're on my side. Trent, you know, we, we we've had each other's backs for a short time, as you pointed out earlier. I'll just say, I mean, I wouldn't have said like you were a short time friend of mine. I'd, you know, I've only known you like six minutes. And I, I, I consider you a close friend already, so oh. take, take from that what you will. That would make me think that you have very few close friends. I can confirm that Parth has a trouble with intimacy and, <laughs> and, and growing close to his uh, comrades and classmates. It's been a long-term issue for him. And that's why we're here to counsel him. With a little help from our friend George Lucas, maybe Parth can uh, learn some social skills. And now to kick off to our guest. Hello, everybody. We're here today joined by our incredible guest, Kurt Vandermatch. He's worked as a storyboard artist on such films as Star Wars The Force Awakens, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and Cloud Atlas. We're super lucky to have him, and we're excited to talk with him. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm, I'm talking to you from Prague. 
that's very exciting. Uh, do you live there? Or? Yeah, I've lived here since 1999. How'd you, how'd you end up in Prague? And where are you from originally? I'm from, I'm from Nova Scotia in Canada. And I came to Prague in 99, like I said, expecting to teach English for three months and probably return to Canada. But I got sort of stuck here and never left 21 years later. Stuck there in the positive sense? How'd you go from <laughs> teaching English and then what were your like jobs after that? And how? Oh, yeah, it was a positive way. I didn't get thrown in jail, but... um. I uh, no, well, I didn't like teaching English. I only I did that for about a month. I was really bad at it, and um, and the, I worked in a few bars, picked up the language more or less at the beginning, and then a friend of mine was working at the movie studios here, and she said, "There's these English guys making a a, a fantasy movie for the Hallmark Channel, which I don't think even exists anymore," um, and this is when you know. They were just throwing all kinds of money into these sort of miniseries like this called The Monkey King, and they need an art department runner. So um, I went and showed them my sketchbook, and they said, well, you probably won't be doing much drawing anyway, but, you know, um, you've got the job. And, and shortly into it, uh, some scene was moved forward, and because it was a fantasy movie, everything had to be built you know, all the props and, and everything. So they said, okay, well, now's your chance. So I got to start drawing some props in, in addition to all the tea and coffee and, you know, ordering lunches that I was doing. And, um, yeah, and so I, I added that to, to my other responsibilities. It was great. So that, that kind of leads us into our next question, which was just going to be, like, how you, so that's how you got involved in the film industry, or the industry, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw... We kind of stalked your site, and we saw that you studied class uh, that you studied classical piano. And then, how? What? What was that? Just are you still interested in that, or is that was that just something you switched into the visual arts from, or like what happened there? Oh, um, yeah, I studied piano at university, and but I could always draw, and probably I could draw even before I started to take the piano seriously. So it just sort of became this sort of I don't know, uh, I. I thought I really wanted to do it, and then around the third year of my four-year degree, I went off to study at one um, summer festival in Orford outside Montreal, and I could just see like all how badly all the other pianists wanted it, and I thought, oh, that's not me, but I think I really want to be an artist. So um, I finished the degree, and it's you know it's uh, nice to be able to um, to be an amateur pianist. It's much nicer than you know than I think probably someone who's trying to be one and not quite good enough. So, so yeah, it's good. I still play when I can. You're, you're, credited as a, you're credited as a storyboard artist on most of your projects. So if you could just explain exactly what that is, the, your process. Um, yeah. Um, I think since, uh, you know, I don't know, for the last 10 or 12 years, maybe more, when people have been buying all these box sets and DVDs and they're trying to fill up all the extras on them, I think now it's become a lot more common knowledge what storyboards are because they're, they're often put into these DVD extras, whereas before nobody had any idea what it was. You know, only people in the industry knew. So this is kind of interesting now because, you know, people are actually interested in storyboards themselves as a sort of art form. 
Um, so what it is, is uh, essentially, um, it's the first visual representation of the director's ideas of how, um, how the movie is going to look, you know, in a very broad way. So it means like, if you read in a script that, you know, some guys are recording a podcast, there's a million different um, possibilities for how these shots look, you know, does it open on, you know, a profile shot of really close up of lips and a microphone, or, you know, are we pulling back? There's, you know, there's a million things I could say. And the director is the one who's decided how he or she wants it to be. So uh, we sit together and they describe to me, okay, shot one is, you know, for instance, you know, maybe it's a top shot looking on a table and you guys are on either side of a table with computers open. And then the camera's going to push down. So I make little scribbles in my meeting. And, um, and then afterwards, you know, after we go through the whole sequence, I take them away and draw them up sort of nicely and type up descriptions, you know, if describing what the camera's doing, add lots of arrows. So if people inside the, the frame are moving, you know, they get an arrow, or if the frame is the camera and it's moving, it gets an arrow. And, and then, um, yeah, and eventually uh, you, you work out all the sequences that, the, that there's time and money to, to storyboard. Generally, when, um, if it's sort of, you know, an indie drama with just a lot of talking heads, they won't do that much storyboarding, if any at all, or maybe the director will just do some scribbles himself. And it's usually, you know, it's uh, visual effects films with, you know, effects and action and stuff like that, that needs specific storyboarding to save time on set. Because the whole point then, which I didn't mention, is that these, these little sort of like this almost comic book version of parts of the script is then used to show to the crew so that they know exactly what the director's intentions are. And once this is signed off, then they can sort of refer to this as the Bible. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's great. I, I was wondering about what, uh, like, medium you use. Like, do you, and, like, do you use multiple versions? Like, do you do paper and pencil, or do you do things on the computer? Uh, um, until, I think, I, I was always paper and pencil. And I would scan it and then put it into a sort of PDF and type up the descriptions. Or then um, for a little while, I was paper and pencil, and then I would scan it and I would add sort of like um, gray tone using a Wacom tablet and 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 um, and uh, Photoshop. And then just after the last time I worked paper and pencil was in on the Vikings. I don't know if you know that series, and. Uh, and then after that, uh, I got to try uh, the new iPad Pro. And, um, and that was like a game changer for me. I, I had never liked, the reason I really resisted drawing on a Wacom tablet, uh, you know, on where you draw on the screen like a Cintiq, is it just never felt right. And it always looked like I had drawn it with my wrong hand or it just, I couldn't forget about the medium and just start to think about the drawing. And um, and something about the, I don't know, the, the, the glass and the hard plastic of the of the Apple Pencil, I just immediately forgot about the, the you know, the toy and was only thinking about the drawing and it looked just as good or, or bad, you know, depending on your stance, as my regular pencil drawing. So I, I just loved it and immediately 
it made my workflow so much better. Like for instance, if you're drawing like one thing with the same background and just one thing changes, all I just have to do is loop it with my finger, three finger swipe to copy paste it and bang, bang, bang. You know, you can do this and it's great. I, I, it's so wonderful. You can, you know, people in the art department can send you a SketchUp draw, drawing of, of a set and you can sort of fly around it and take screenshots and then use that as a sort of basis to draw shots that are really specific, especially if it's a complicated environment that, you know, the director wants to have perfect. Um, I was wondering if uh, multiple storyboard artists are working simultaneously on the same project and if you have any collaboration with them. Uh, yeah, on on big projects, that definitely happens. You know, those a uh, couple of the jobs that you mentioned in your intro, like like Jurassic, I think overall there were seven of us. And at one time, four of us, like all together, and then like people come and go. And some like collaboration, I, in a way, because sometimes you draw a scene and then it comes back a couple weeks later that they've, you know, rewritten it or there's some kind of difference. They've taken out a character and you need to revise it or just that the director wants to add a a few um a few beats to it and so maybe you you've already moved on to something else that's you know urgent so another storyboard artist might have to take your scene and sort and sort of add stuff to the middle of it or or revise it and once in a while they'll ask you to see if you can keep the um the the style the same but generally it doesn't really matter as long as you can as you can see it and make it out. Yeah, yeah, you do wind up with these sort of Frankenstein versions of scenes where you can see like three or four different hands through it by the end of the movie. Um, so one of the things I was uh, wondering was like your relationship with the director as a storyboard artist. So like, do they just give you a scene and then you kind of try to figure out blocking and things by yourself or... Um, is that something that you communicate closely with the director or is that something that changes from project to project? The last one, it changes from project to project. Sometimes um, directors love your input and will say, well, why don't you have a crack at it first, see what you've done, and then maybe they'll keep, you know, a little bit of it or maybe nothing. But some, I find that um, some directors like to or find it useful to see what they don't want in order to be able to articulate what they do want. This is, right. this is something that happens, and it's totally understandable. So it means that even if you spend a day drawing a whole scene that gets thrown out, it's still been useful as an exercise because it's it's brought the director to the point where they can say, oh, actually, I really need this, this, and this. But um, usually, it's some, I find mostly lately, it's something in the middle where we'll have a meeting together and we'll talk, and they ha they know generally what they want, or they'll especially have like, a few key shots or or sort of shot sequences that they want and then in the in the middle people are you know generally open to you making a suggestion oh yeah wouldn't it be good if we went behind their head here or you know we tracked along the hallway and then they'll say yes or no and you know and often it's yes because a good director knows that you have to take ideas from everywhere i was wondering if um do you, are, are there some projects where you only do like key shots um, or are you on every project like doing every shot on the shot list? Oh, um, I guess like these sort of keyframe pictures is an interesting thing that I've only experienced lately where uh, it, we did it on um, Jurassic World, the Fallen Kingdom one. 
the, where they had made an entire version of the script from beginning to end using only keyframes, meaning like a sort of representative one frame of each scene. That And then they put it up in this big war room that they had all the meetings in. And you could go in and basically look at the shape of the movie from beginning to end. But these were generally taken out of uh, worked up scenes that we had done and then just like slightly improved because... Um, there might be people who aren't able to look at like a really bad scribble and, and know exactly what it's supposed to mean. But yeah, no, so so yes, this happens sometimes, but usually you'll draw the whole scene as it's needed using using the entire shot list. But you almost never storyboard a whole movie. Like scenes that are, they basically start with sort of a wish list of like, you know, the big complicated action VFX extravaganza climax of the movie is usually the first thing you start with and then there's sort of like a you know a list of things in, of lesser importance as it comes down but often with these um these franchise movies or you know these big budget VFX movies you'll you'll be drawing before the script is even locked down so you will sometimes be drawing scenes that are just exploratory you know this happens too I was going to ask if you have any say in which scenes you're assigned? Like, are some storyboard artists say like a drama, like a drama person, while others are like big action sequences? And do you have any say in which of uh, of which scenes you're assigned? Like based oh, that, on your skill set or preferences. Interesting. Uh, no, I've never experienced that. It's basically just who's free. Generally, I've it's. I guess I could say, yeah, generally I've been mostly on projects where it's just me and then only those those big uh, London jobs, you know, then where there's been more. And in those cases, it wasn't based on, you know, what, you know, basically you just draw what you're asked to draw and you, I don't specialize. I mean, some people are really great at drawing certain things, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter. So, no. Um, speaking of the big London jobs, um, you landed probably the biggest London job ever um, as a storyboard artist, and we were just wondering how you ended up getting involved with Star Wars. Um, that was a, just a sort of a nice coincidence. Uh, storyboard artists generally, uh, especially over here in Europe and the UK, don't use... Um, agents it's just about who you know and who you've worked with and you know you're lucky if the phone rings and and uh london was really busy at the time when um when the force awakens was starting up and somebody called my friend and uh giles asbury who's another storyboard artist who's great and uh and he had to turn the job down and and gave them my number and and so they called me without letting on what they were first and so um when I finally figured out what this was, it was really exciting. And of course, you know, it's it's really nice to work on something, especially if you're a big fan like me. I, I have been since I was a kid. So, uh, yeah. How, how did they how did they mask um, what production it was? Well, usually this often happens when you're offered a job that you ju they'll just say, you know, hi, I'm so and so producer's assistant or producer. And I'm just wanted to check your availability. And in this case, and and I've seen this before, that they just they just took the signature off the email, so so it was sort of frustrating, and I was like, oh, you know, what could this job be? I knew it was London, so anyway, eventually, 
they um, revealed what it was. And I, you know, ran around the house doing cartwheels. <laughs> um, so uh, you worked on both um, seven and eight. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of both movies. I was wondering, since there's a difference in director, uh, did that does that did that change your process a lot, or was it mostly the same? Um, yeah, the process was very different. Um, uh, it was it was m the more usual process with J.J. Abrams, um, uh, you know, going for a shot list meeting, and then with um, with Ryan Johnson, he's you know he has a very clear idea of what he wants. Not that J.J. didn't, but that Ryan just had a different approach to it, where you know he would make these little scribbles for us, and it was you know. It was it was quite different, and but also enjoyable in a different way. Oh, so uh, does that happen, like somewhat often that like a, a a director will come to you with their their own drawings? Oh yeah, all all the time, all the time. Um, uh, uh, Jay Bayona, who who did um, Fallen Kingdom, did these funny little drawings. Like he's actually a great artist, but you know he never has time, and so he would do these like really you know, sort of hilariously bad scribbles of, you know, what he needed. And I would just like take them on in a, in a multiply layer under my drawing. And then you can just stick to, and this is in general, not just with him. Like if you get a director, if a director draws you a scribble, then it's, you know, it's gospel. And you, I would just take a picture of it with my phone and airdrop it onto my, onto my iPad and then um, drag it into my drawing program and then essentially draw over it, you know, draw it more completely, but, you know, conserve all of the, all of the proportions that you've been given by the director and, and, you know, then it's perfect, you know, more or less. Between projects, um, do you like a try, try to establish like a visual language that fits, uh, like f fits like the mood or the tone or how do you go about like finding like like finding your voice with each new like visual like language oh i know what you mean and generally be, like what almost always happens and not almost always is but very often happens is they have they don't have a budget or they only are able to start storyboarding you know shortly before they're about to you know, to, um, to shoot. And so you wind up like always doing, uh, your scenes under major time constraints. So sometimes they'll even tell you, listen, like, we just want to get as much done as we possibly can. So please just draw, draw scribble thumbnails as long as, you know, with, with, you know, including, um, a shot description, we can make out the scribble and that's it. And so like often you're forced to draw kind of badly, so there would be no question of thinking about style or tone. You're just hoping you get it done in time for, you know, for the for the recce where they go to check out the sets. And then other times, like um, I've been working on this Amazon show called Carnival Row lately. And um, and it has been there's generally been a bit more time. And so I was able to work them up and render them a little bit more. But I think as far as like changing style for the for the show I would never do that I'd be I basically just have one style and like a lot of storyboard artists will tell you like that because you wind up drawing so much you know thousands of these drawings a year you know many thousands probably 
um, I find that my style changes from year to year so much anyway, because you're just drawing so much. So it's, it's very hard to be consistent, I think. There's a few guys who are so consistent, and I really admire it, but not me. Um, just speaking on style, um, are there artists, like are there specific artists that you would say were influences on you and your style? Or, I mean, you just said it changes, but like, or if there were people that um, sort of influenced you to go into this industry that way? Um, oh, in terms of storyboard artists themselves? When I. A storyboard artist or, or just artists, like in general, that you you found influential or even just like favorite favorite like childhood movies that taught you like the magic of 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 the industry oh okay that's interesting um yeah i'm sure there are if i gave it some thought uh i love mobius i mean who doesn't and you know and um and i liked a lot of you know sort of like art art you know the sort of classical western art and um and was always looking at that stuff as a kid. And I, you know, that was, I sort of thought I wanted to become like a painter for a while. And then, and then, you know, I realized that you could actually make money drawing these illustrations for movies. So that's a digression though. Um, and then in terms of like storyboard artists, I was, um, I was an, uh, a concept artist on one of the Narnia movies that they were doing in Prague. And then I got a call from a different company who was doing Wanted that, um, James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie. Yeah, yeah. And they were looking for a storyboard artist. And I had only done it, I think, once or twice by that point. And this was seemed like a really fun, exciting job. And so the people at um, Narnia were nice and they let me go because they knew I, I really wanted to have this. And, uh, and I wound up working with um, one uh, English storyboard artist called Martin Asprey who is, you know, a legend. He's been doing it for years and years. Um, and so getting on an early job to sort of sit across the table from him and look over his shoulder and get like some tips was, um, I mean, aside from him being extremely funny, it was, it was really a great experience. And it, it, it was, if I, I don't think if I had that experience at that time, I would have really continued in the way I did because he he was just like you know look you cannot you cannot get lost in detail you have to you know you have to just bang them out and and develop like a a way of 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 being fast and concise yeah it was really great and then of course like there's like these um these online uh groups there's a couple of facebook groups one called frame dump and uh, a couple others where uh i mean now there's like just it seems like there's just a million people on framed up so i can't even follow it anymore but at the beginning it was just all these professional storyboard artists from la and the uk and you know not really that many of us and you would just post one of your frames and you can see that there's some in in um the uk like penrod banks who's wonderful and um this guy brock bank who's uh who's fantastic so, and everybody, uh, Alex Hilkerts, everybody just, you know, drools over these frames by these guys. And, and I find them in, sort of inspiring too. So you briefly mentioned you worked as a concept artist and also in looking at your IMDb, we uh, saw that you worked as a scenic painter. Uh, I was just curious if you could talk about like the responsibilities of those positions and how they like built up to you being a storyboard artist. 
Oh, um, yeah, the scenic painter thing was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had worked for two movies uh, with this uh, um, Canadian production designer called Carol Spear. And we were on uh, Blade 2. And they sort of hired me as a concept artist. It was only, I think, my second movie job. And then uh, the, their scenic painter needed another person uh, working with him who spoke Czech and English. And so uh, they suggested me and I said, I'd like to try it. And it wound up just being a really great job. Like you're just filthy from morning till night. You have to drive around to different locations in different sets. And, you know, with a big sprayer on your back, making everything look dirty. And it was, you know, there are all these like fun. I mean, I'm sort of reducing the job of a scenic painter slightly. I'm sure they would, they would describe it differently. But uh, I really liked it. But I, what I did miss was drawing. And so after a few jobs as a scenic, maybe four or five, I, uh, I got an offer to be a storyboard artist on this movie that Liev Schreiber was directing. And I think they just wanted to save money and they thought, oh, he can draw, you know, maybe he can manage it. So I met with Liev and, and said I had never done it before. And he said, well, I've never directed before, so this will be a good match. And, uh, and, it, and it was my first job and, and I didn't go back. I kept, I kept doing storyboards after that. Um, so you've spoken about how a lot of these big budget movies have really quick um, production schedules. And yes. so you have to work really quickly. Um, but then I'm wondering also, because they are also such long productions, um, how, how long... Uh, on average, would you say a a project like that takes and like the difference between that and like a TV show or something like that? Oh, uh, well, f it, it sort of depends. Like um, with um, like, for instance, with The Last Jedi, there was um, I was working with the, the storyboard artist that I mentioned, Martin Asprey and uh, David Alcock, who is like this, you know, legendary English storyboard artist who's really, really good. And he and he was sort of he sort of led it, and once things were calming down, then they let me and Martin go, and David stayed on for the entire production just to sort of be around just in case. I did the same thing on Jurassic World, where we had like I told you we had these we had seven people through, and then in the end, um, they just kept me, and I would basically hang around set until the director had a moment and would need something. So in that case, I was on it for 13 months. But sometimes if you're just hired during, you know, like uh, Last Jedi or something like that, then maybe you would be like two or three months or a bit longer. And then, of course, with the TV show, um, there's so much to get through. These TV jobs are great because um, first, because your gigs are a lot longer, so you're not looking for work again. And um, and I just find that with television, this is not your question, but I <laughs> I find that with television, um, they don't like really have time to to waste as they do on movies, like where you might draw six versions of a scene that are completely different while the director and the and the and the writer and stuff like that all all try out different ideas. With the TV, the time is really money and they, they tend to know what they want earlier. And so you don't draw so many versions of scenes and, and you, you get through a lot more. Also they really need the storyboards because storyboards save so much time on set when you've got a plan like that. So they, you know, 
they tend to be more concise and more thorough. Mm -hmm. So, so would you say you kind of prefer the 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 workflow of a TV show more, just because of the 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 necessity of immediacy? I guess. Um, I guess so. There's aspects of it that I really like a lot more. Like, um, there's not. Uh, I mean, there can, it can be very exciting to work on movies, and you you can work with some like really exciting people. But I find that like the whole the, the whole feeling of the crew on a TV show or like when I'm talking TV, I mean, basically these streaming services and like the director behaves almost like a first AD, you know, walking around with their own notes and, and clipboard planning everything out, like because because time is so precious and everything is so, has to be um, so clearly planned also because on a TV show the director has someone above them, which is called the showrunner. And that they are basically like the sort of the over director who makes sure that all the various directors, because usually you'll have like one director directing two or three episodes. They'll be prepping them, storyboarding them. And then when they start to shoot them, I'll start working with the next director who's prepping their, you know, two or three episodes and like that. And so um, the showrunner, keeps it all consistent that you know that there's one one main main feeling to it all or or style i was wondering if are you only involved during like for movies uh during pre-production or is there a point where your contribution is like locked in or are they changing things like through day-to-day shooting and then you're contacted to make like quick revisions or new versions oh totally um uh, jurassic world was a good example for that because they were doing um so you know at one point we thought that we were going to lose our jobs because they started to do this great um you know all this great visual effects uh like pre-visualizations which are basically these they look like you know 90s video game style animations of the scene and and people were saying oh this is going to take over storyboarding but it didn't and it just became another um another uh step in the process with storyboards still coming you know the director to the storyboard artist and then they would maybe do the previs but they would base that previs on these storyboards and then there's another thing that happens sometimes which is um they will make what's sort of like a boredomatic. I don't know if you've heard that expression, but essentially they'll take the storyboards you've drawn, cut them out and put them into an editing program, adding, you know, noise or music and these sort of things and start to build, you know, a, like a timed scene like that. And then, um, and then the previous people, as they finish their, their 90s video game animation, I mean, I mean, it's getting better and better every year, but um, they'll sort of di- basically take out your drawing and plug it in with their their animated bit. And so what would happen like on Jurassic, you know, deep into the shooting process when they'd, you know, been shooting for, you know, weeks already, I was still nearby as the director would in sort of, you know, at certain times be sitting in the, in the previs room looking at sequences that they'd put together and um, he would get an idea and then like some out of breath, you know, previous guy would come running into my room saying, could you quickly draw um, blood going through a tube like really fast while I wait? 
And then I would just airdrop it to him and he'd run back down the hall, put it into the edit. And then they, you know, and so this was going on constantly where they were saying, oh, you know, we need this frame, this frame, this frame. So where you weren't even drawing full sequences by that point, you're just like plugging it in and they're sculpting and finessing these scenes with drawings that were then replaced by previs animation, which is then replaced by the by the final shot material. It, it shows that you didn't work on episode nine. Um, I'm wondering that that. Uh, production kind of went through some production changes um, like regarding the director so was that because of that or was it just sort of happenstance and you'd gotten some other job yeah yeah you never know they who's going to be working on it but um, the main guy on that was David Alcock who was who was one of the guys on Jurassic with me and on eight yeah and I, I think he's put it some of his work online you can you can look for it it's fantastic so like when you, since you do uh, so much work in pre-production and like your um, storyboards are basically the basis for what they're going to shoot, um, is it often reflected in the final like uh, project or, um, and like, how does it feel to have, I guess, have, have it be what you drew versus have it be something different from what you drew? If you oh, sort of speak. right. Um... Well, uh, when it really looks like the storyboards, then it's kind of exciting because you think, oh, this is great. Then they really meant it. But I think with a lot of these bigger projects, especially, I think because um, obviously after if after it's boarded and shot, then it goes through the editing process. And then, you know, they sit with it and and either they, you know, they, you know, they can they can change it so much from the from the board. So generally, you know, sometimes it's unrecognizable by the time you get it, which can be a bit disappointing, but you know, that's just how it works. And generally, you know, it's, they've, they've had time to think about it, you know, if this was really necessary. So, um, doesn't, I haven't really answered your question, which is there's, there's this interesting thing that sometimes happen when you're watching a movie that, that you worked on and, you know, especially a sequence where you have that feeling seeing something for the first time that you've seen it before, because you know where it's going to go. And, it's it's an odd feeling this is kind of just a question for me mm -hmm. um uh, i'm a very big fan of the wachowskis um and oh. you you've worked on cloud atlas uh jupiter ascending and sense eight which was like the, their their netflix series um uh so what was it like to work with them well, I don't really know because um, on Jupiter Ascending, they were mostly in Chicago during the pre-production time that I was working in Berlin, and I didn't interact with them hardly at all uh, because I was working um, as a as a concept artist. So I was interacting with the production designer mostly, and then on on Cloud Atlas, you know, um, there were two teams. There was the Tom Tikvar team and the Wachowski team and they each did three parts of the story and I was on Tikvar's team and then it was because of my connection to him that I was working on Sense8 so I was doing all of his sequences on Sense8 so uh, so disappointingly I can't tell you anything about them but I think they're amazing <laughs> but you already know that yeah uh, well so so it seems like you have a relationship with the production designer um so like is 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 our is your closest like working collaborator them or the director or like is that another like it's variable to change oh well it's uh the it's i guess that the 
production designer will be in probably second place. The director is always first for a storyboard artist. And, you know, you, they'll often, you know, when you're starting a job, make sure that you've got a room that's kind of close to them so that they can just, you know, dip their head in and say, oh, I thought up this shot, you know, that you want to be sort of in their trajectory. And then, but then you definitely, you know, are so dependent on the production designer because, you know, they're going to be telling you how they want things to look. And often, like, um, uh, I, I've worked with this production designer, Andy Nicholson, who did uh, Assassin's Creed and Jurassic um, World with us. And he really liked for us to do storyboards before he had really designed it because he said, then I know what the director wants. If you just make up some sort of ambiguous sort of world based on the action and the, and the shape of things, then he would base his designs on what the director needed and then worked with you know a concept artist to then take these little scribbles that we had done storyboard wise and use those to, to make up you know some proposals for the director. It was a really interesting way of working. But yeah, always you need to have a good relationship with the production designer and the art department in general who are going to be, like I said earlier, sometimes now people are mostly building things in, you know, in, in computer assisted design. So they can generally send you, if it's a set, they can generally send you um, a set or an interior or a whole city in the case of, you know, Carnival Row as a 3D build. And you can sort of fly around inside it with something like SketchUp Viewer or one of these things and find angles and, and, and essentially trace over them and then just draw the action on top of it, which is a huge time saver. And also it makes things very, very specific and correct, especially if this is something that's going to be done in, in visual effects, where you can't just be too ambiguous about the backgrounds as you sometimes are, you know, to save time. Like if, if you're drawing a scene and you can just sort of indicate the background because maybe that's all that's important about, the, about drawing the scene. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're obviously in the middle of strange and uncertain times right now. Mm -hmm. um, how has that sort of affected your ability to work or if it's changed the way you work or something like that? Well, I always did a lot of work remotely. Like I've done entire films, you know, in my pajamas where I've only been interacting with the director via email. But um, I mean, on Carnival Row, we shut down from one night to the next where I had to call the director's assistant and say, oh, is that meeting on for tomorrow morning? This is like Thursday in March. And she was like, didn't you hear? We've just completely shut down. So like it was really abrupt. And then, I mean, I have the capacity to work remotely, but there's just no um, no productions on at the moment. There's some whispering that some things are starting up. So, but uh, they've been making some commercials. In fact, that's what I've, I'm doing today. I've been you know, making a little money doing commercials, which is always nice between big jobs to, um, you know, to, to, keep, to keep, you know, earning. And, and then on top of that, like taking, it's, it's kind of been an exhausting year. There's just always been a project going. And you, as a freelancer, I mean, I'm sure any other freelancer will tell you the same thing you just sort of hate to turn down jobs because you could, you, the next one, you never know when the next one's going to be. Since Star Wars, I've been lucky that uh, I, I've gotten quite a few offers, but, you know, it won't always be like that. You can't count on it. So, you know, you do sort of nervously take jobs. So I, having this sort of forced break was fantastic. I just started like, you know, doing drawing and, and painting on my own rather than for a production. And, you know, 
it was good to get a good break and now you know start up with new energy i have a question sure since it some shots definitely require like camera movement and you have to account for that and that could factor in like the like the geography of the scene and like the set do they give you like the like the floor plan for like whatever like room or space the final products will be taking place in or do you have like any like creative freedom with that and then they base it around like you and the the director's like uh, ideas oh well that's sort of yeah that's sort of what i meant before um some if the if it's early early on and sometimes storyboard artists are brought on very early um you'll be drawing a scene before it's been totally you know before the writing of it is locked down and, and you know i've started before the production designer on certain jobs and so you're drawing things that are where the director is just giving you the shape of the scene you know they want them to jump over something. They want this thing to fly around something, you know, oh, I want a cliff, but maybe the it's not been designed. And so you, then the designer, the production designer will use these, you know, and then, you know, as a, as a sort of a, a general idea of the shape of things and will make their designs based on it. Other times, if you're drawing and the production designer has already started, you know, um, and everything's been designed, then they'll give you very specific. You either get from the concept artists angles of the room or the space or the even the exterior, what it could look like, and then you can base on one drawing. You can sort of guess what it's going to look like. Like one skill that a storyboard artist has to have is to be able to imagine places, spaces, and people from any angle. And it's something that you get better at as, you, as it goes on and, and it becomes sort of instinct. But um, so you can get a floor plan and, and a couple of, you know, concept art pieces or sometimes the uh, locations department, along with the first AD, uh, the first assistant director will send you photos of like the location scouts where they've just taken pictures looking in all directions. And then the production designer will scribble on them. OK, yeah, yeah we've got this old house, but over here we're adding, you know, this thing. And then you can you can draw based on that. Or like I said, you can get a completely um, a, a perfect 3D model that you can fly around inside of as it, as it, like a camera and take screenshots of it. I was just wondering how, obviously, uh, it's a case-by-case basis and there's a range, but how long does like one individual storyboard take you? And it's like, how many do you typically complete in like one sitting or like one work day? Um, it's, it depends. Uh, if you, I did this commercial recently, which was like just all these high angles of a city. So I hardly like did any at all in a day because it was for VFX and they wanted it to be, you know, more or less correct. So, um, I mean, close-ups of people's faces take a lot less time than, you know, wide shots of cities. So, but I, there's a sort of industry standard of like 30 a day. But it could, you know, it could be up to 50 or more if they're really in a bind. And and it could be a lot less if they need to be nicer. You know, you could maybe 20. So and then like, I don't it depends. It, it, it does depend so much on how good you want it to be. I often generally will draw like a rough sketch and do and sketch out a whole scene rough. 
and then send it to the person who needs to see it to make give me their input before I spend the time doing a sort of finished version because if they're going to cut stuff then you might as well not waste the time. Um, by the time that you um, are drawing your storyboard, say for a big movie, are the actors already cast? And so are you drawing them or are you just drawing like blank faces or just like the description of the character as it is in the script? Uh, yeah. Uh, so often the casting is not locked down when you start and you might know, you know, only the main one. And in that case, I print out some pictures of them, but I never try and, you know, draw portraits. First, I'm just not really very good at drawing likenesses like that so easily. Like some, there's a few <clears throat> storyboard artists who are great at that. But generally, you just try and, and make it look like the description of the character. And if they have like, you know, you know, a sort of Groto Marx face, then so much the better because it's easier to differentiate people, you know, from frame to frame. Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, I don't know whether you're allowed to answer this or not so by the power of editing we can always take it out but okay. um if you could speak on like what specific scenes you worked on in the force awakens or last jedi um uh yeah i don't think i think that's fine in the force awakens you know um there were quite a few one of them that uh was really fun is the is the falcon crash and um which you know was really great to be able to draw these iconic characters for the first time. I remember being really excited. Um, and uh, a bit of the uh, the when um, when Ray in the other one when Ray is having her uh, when she's trying to convince Luke to to train her. I was involved in that scene, for instance. Thank you so much for your time. Um, is there any place that people like our listeners can reach you at if they want to see your work or anything like that uh i have it's i have some work on my instagram which is just my name vanderboss or kurt vanderboss i don't know actually and um and i have a website also under my name with some of my work it's generally just for people who want to hire me and get a, a little sample of of what it looks like but um you're welcome to have a look uh thanks guys it was really uh really nice thank you so much for coming Okay, stay healthy. You too. You too. Okay, bye. Thanks to Kurt for talking with us. It was very informative. Let's get to our discussion. Since uh, Kurt gave us some behind-the-scenes information on the production, let's uh, give some production history for our for audience here. Parth, what was, what was the budget of this movie? Do you know? So glad that you asked. Um, so this... This movie was budgeted for t between two hundred and three hundred and seventeen million dollars, or so Wikipedia tells me. It made one point three 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 billion dollars. Um, I uh, looked up what one point three billion is, other contexts, and it is the GDP of the country of Grenada and also the population of India. So maybe just every person in India paid one dollar. To see this movie once as as a person of indian descent I, i'm gonna tell you that's true oh well i would think that you know the remainder of the world might want to see it but i guess it's star wars is india's little secret now it's it's true well in actuality uh it made 712 million dollars internationally and 
domestically it made 620 million dollars so not a not a bad not a bad job disney yeah disney you made uh like four or five times your money way to go and who would have thought that star wars was profitable at the box office Parth, did you know that this uh, movie received Oscar nominations? Let's talk about it. There was uh, Best Achievement in Visual Effects, Musical Score from, you know, John Williams, uh, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing. And it, it won none of them. No. So. Bummer. Star Wars continuing to go through life receiving no credit. Um, speaking of credit, uh, this movie was released to, in contrast to The Force Awakens, to a very divisive, uh, fan reaction. Um, so I've, I've had Trent compile some one-star reviews from Amazon.com. Would you like to, would you like to read some of those, Trent? Yeah, good preface, Parth. So, um, this is going to be a new segment of the show, um, where I read some people's, uh, thoughts who, uh, didn't, didn't like the movie. And let me uh, give a warning now that uh, some of these people didn't like this movie for the wrong reasons, as you're about to see. Okay, title, What Happened to Star Wars? And I quote, I like Star Wars, but this sucked. They kept breaking the rules of the Star Wars universe and promoting feminist BS. I don't think I will be following this genre anymore. Well put. Review 2. Thanks, Disney. This movie was barely watchable. It is sad to see how this franchise has fallen. What the heck did they do with Skywalker's character? He's a complete dweeb now. Also, the purple hair lady just beat out Jar Jar Binks as the most annoying character in the entire franchise. That's not true. Moving on. Titled, I did not like it. And I quote, Nothing against Amazon at all, but this was terrible and pitiful and did not help the franchise. In fact, George Lucas needs to personally apologize to all the fans for what he did to our beloved Star Wars. Last but not least, titled, Sucks More Than You Can Imagine. And I quote, Sucks, sucks, sucks. All PC plot. Shame on you, Disney. Shame, shame, shame on Lucas for selling out. I wish I had better command of the English language to describe how disappointed I am. I sometimes relish mocking the infant-brained meatbags who go crazy over the new films in the Star Wars universe. Um, yeah, that's it for this segment, but... Um, I think that made some good points. Yeah, I, I think saying that Holdo is, is more cringe than Jar Jar Banks is nonsense. And also, this person who says nothing against Amazon... What what do they think Amazon's affiliation is with Star Wars? I mean, they're writing it on Amazon.com, I guess. So, I, But it's not. It, yes, it's on their website, but it's not personal. I mean, this person did also say that George Lucas needed to personally apologize to each fan for what he did to, to their beloved franchise made for um, babies that was created to sell toys. Even though George Lucas just wanted to sell his franchise for $4 billion, he, I think he's the one person who can't be blamed because, you know, it's out of his hands. He was the only one who had nothing to do with it. And now for a word from our sponsor. Hi, this is Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon. June is Small Business Month, a time to support grassroots organizations such as Amazon.com. We started as a small online bookstore, and now we sell some other stuff too. Let it be known. I treat my employees exceptionally well, and I have nowhere near $1 trillion. 
Thank you. Uh, fun fact, this is the long... At a runtime of 152 minutes, it is, to date, the longest Star Wars movie in the saga. That's true. Um, what was... What'd you guys think? So, one of the things about The Last Jedi that's that's confusing to me is how much I want to like it, but how much I, I can't. This was the first time I was re-watching it um, since I watched Rise of Skywalker. It came out in December. Um, and this is definitely the best time I had viewing it, but it still has some, some problems as far as I'm concerned. Um, the first time I watched this movie, I wasn't really sure what I thought about it. I'm, I, I remember saying I either love this movie or hate it. And then I started out disliking this movie and I, I've, I've now jumped onto the Last Jedi bandwagon and I very much enjoyed my latest viewing of this. Okay, I'll, st- I'll say my piece. So I immediately bought into the, the hate machine um, simply because it wasn't as like formulaic as all the other Star Wars movies to date. And there were some elements that didn't resonate with me, as I'm sure we'll get into later. But much to my chagrin, last night's viewing has really provided some insight. And I think I'm, I would go as far as to say I'm neutral on this movie where there are as many things as I like outwardly despise, there are some awesome moments too. And uh, so there's, much like the Force, there's a balance. Well done. Well said, Trent. Yes, that was uh, scripted. I wrote that down last night. And uh, did it come off as genuine? Yeah. It, it almost did until you told us it wasn't. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the first rule of improv is um, yes and. I, oh, I, th- I thought you were going to say the first rule of improv is to write all your material down first. <laughs> oh, no, part that's the second rule of improv. So what did, what did everybody think of? Let, let's just break this down. Um, what everybody think of the story? I think it can be said that this movie, I'd say it's the most condensed Star Wars movie where it takes place in the shortest span of time. Because I would say beginning to end, what is it all within? It's 18 hours. Uh, I was going to say that it it feels like less than that. It's they said that by the time that the ship is running out of fuel, they say they have 18 hours of fuel reserves. But like Force Awakens, just for reference, is like over a matter of days. Is that correct? Well, that you know, that's part of the problem. Is that just to be assumed? Yeah, it's it's, the timelines are so vague. Yeah, in in the Empire Strikes Back, problem with that, like the the first Star Wars movie takes place over like a day. In The Empire Strikes Back, it seems as if Luke is training for, like, several months. And, and meanwhile, Han and Leia are on one romp through the asteroid belt. So yeah. it's, it's never really clear how much time elapses. But in this one, they, they did say that there's 18 hours of fuel left. But I would say that this movie feels very, like, kinetic. And that even though I... Like, there's so many, like, separate, like, journeys and dynamics that it's just, like, all cross-cutting between different, like, tasks. Yeah, I I would say this is the most, other than the end of The Phantom Menace, which has, like, four intercutting action set pieces, like, this is probably the most, like, frayed um, Star Wars movie. Because it has has three different storylines going on. At the same time. When usually, like at least in the original trilogy, it'll it'll be split into two with like Luke doing something, 
And mm. then like Han and Leia or Chewie, you know. I didn't really have a problem with it having three different storylines. I feel like it gives it momentum that whenever one scene starts to like to, to good, lag off, like, and... it just it just cuts to the next one. But I feel like the problem with that is there's an imbalance in how much investment the audience has in different yeah different strands or dynamics. So when one of like the less interesting ones is on, you just want to go back to Kylo well, or Rey. Which one did you find less interesting? I think the the best part of the new movies is is Kylo Ren and and Rey and his like Force FaceTimes um, was a new concept that I want to criticize for never being mentioned before, but I guess th- this is just an extension of, like, Luke and Leia being able to, like, sense each other and stuff, or Luke and Vader. I, I really like the... I really like... I feel like you don't need to explain... All sorts of force shit happens in the original trilogy that, that has... And, and the prequel trilogy that, like, has no prior explanation, but it's not like... Like, I can buy force Skype. You see, that's, you know, one of the benefits of having seen Rise of Skywalker now is is that, you know, we kind of get some insight into that relationship and the connection that they have you know this this movie kind of laid the groundwork for the you know quote-unquote dyad in the force that nobody had seen before so in in a few ways it it is entirely new but uh, i mean if we're going through it then there's also like the poe storyline as he interacts with leia and haldo and then you have the finn and rose arc Uh, yeah the the luke ray aspect of the story is i think like some of that is peak star wars Sure. Some of the scenes, but even Mark Hamill has like gone on the record as critiquing the direction they've taken Luke Skywalker's character because he was always known for you know he was the New Hope, and that was like his thesis statement, and now he's like abandoned the Force entirely and abandoned his sister and friends when they like might or will die with due to his absence. I'm I'm okay with it because what arc do you give luke yeah I, I agree that his arc was already completed so this is kind of like resetting his character so there's more room for growth oh well what i was gonna say is that when i was watching it again this time and i remember seeing a lot of people upset that luke was like this old man luke who was kind of a hermit the same way obi-wan was not in the same way but similar and i actually kind of thought that was in character for him uh, especially like the thing with him overreacting to the darkness he sees in kylo in every version of luke that we saw in in the original trilogy he was impulsive, you know, he was close to the dark side. You know, he was never this level-headed Jedi master. So that kind of made sense to me. The part of the movie where I think it veered off the Luke Skywalker track was when he uh, confronts Kylo and he says that he's not even going to try to redeem him. That's not Luke Skywalker, you know? Do you think that could be attributed to he wants to engage in this showdown like just because his purpose is to stall time so like what he's saying doesn't like really matter because he's just trying to like distract him maybe it's just for the purpose of like enraging him yeah well that that could be said to that point in that scene where he where he does the force projection it confused me because he has uh anakin skywalker's lightsaber and it's blue right do you guys know what i'm talking about yeah but earlier, like maybe 10 minutes before we watched anakin's lightsaber get destroyed in the chamber room with snoke it's fake. Yeah, I know. That's uh, so you could say that maybe he used he projected himself to have this blue lightsaber that was rightfully Anakin slash Darth Vader's in order to enrage Kylo. Maybe like it could just be another blue lightsaber that he happened to acquire. But if Kylo was just in the room while that lightsaber blew up, couldn't he be like, oh, this is some sort of trick because I just watched that object explode. I don't think Kylo is thinking that much about the color of Luke's lightsaber. 
it's not just the color, it's the handle. Like the hilt is, you, you can tell which blue lightsaber is Anakin's because the hilt, every hilt is different. Fair enough. But uh-huh. where's his green lightsaber from Return of the Jedi? Is that never mentioned? Well, I, what I assume is since like that's the lightsaber that he used that almost killed Kylo. Because one of the problems that, not a problem, but like a small issue I had was earlier when I used to, before this current viewing of the movie, was I, I really like the character arc that they give Luke of, mm-hmm. um, it, it's kind of weird, like this is, the new Star Wars trilogy seems to have a very meta approach to them, uh, they're, they're very much about people being very aware of Star Wars in the original trilogy and stuff like that, so it felt it felt very interesting to me that everybody got upset that Luke Skywalker wasn't the Luke Skywalker we knew when that's the point of the movie. The The whole point is that he isn't that. And so when he shows up at the end and he's, you know, he looks younger, his hair's cut. Um, mm. It's that's supposed to, oh, the Luke Skywalker we know has come to save us. And so then my thought was, well, then why doesn't he have the green lightsaber from Re- Return of the Jedi? And so the the argument that I came up with it was well if he has he he goes into hiding for several years because he believes he failed kylo ren and Mm -hmm. i i doubt he would want to keep that green lightsaber and he's he's sort of abandoned every aspect he's closed himself off from the force yeah he's he's renounced jedis entirely and he had no problem of trying to get rid of anakin's blue lightsaber so it not being there made sense to me and uh luke's character regressing into his like angsty teen stage. I know received some criticism, but I think it like makes sense because in A New Hope, he's very whiny. Whiny the whole trilogy, except except for most of Return of the Jedi. I think a lot of people's dislike of Luke's portrayal has to do with the fact in like the way that Luke and the Force is shown in the original trilogy. You know, it's not given to you all at once. It, you you never really see a lot of it, and it leaves you wanting more of it. So people were kind of expecting to see Jedi Master Luke, you know, kicking ass and taking names and doing all sorts of badass stuff. But, you know, this movie doesn't give you that until the I very end. I don't really know, like, what, what you would gain from that. Like, I don't know what that does other than it would be cool to see him do all that stuff. Just seeing Luke Skywalker the way he was when we last saw him feels like a, a would have been a wasted opportunity in my eyes loyalists ha- have the like the framed image in their mind of luke as like this all, all powerful being at the end of return of the jedi and then they don't understand how he could have like lost all that ability i also feel like it's a mis- misunderstanding to say like he was an all-powerful jedi like like there's this weird perception but he he gives in to the dark side, then says, then throws away his lightsaber. His dad saves him. Like, he's not even the one that wins. I don't know. It, it's always felt weird to me how people have this perception of him that I, I've never really bought into. You think Luke gives in to the dark side? Dude, yeah. He, like, gets super pissed at, at Darth Vader and then cuts off his hand. No. Oh. Okay. Even before that, at Jabba's palace, like, he just, he just, like, force chokes those, uh, the, the guards. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? And he's wearing all black. Like, it, it all has a very sinister feel to, to it. He's willing to freaking sell C-3PO and R2-D2 as slaves. I always thought that that was, some, that, that was like a ploy. I mean, make no mistake about it. Luke didn't want 
to slaughter all those people at Jabba's palace. But, you know, he tried to be diplomatic, but he knew it wasn't going to work. And ultimately, he killed every single person there, you know? Like, that's not very Jedi. Just uh, to, the, to the point of um, Luke Skywalker's character, I think the reason that this movie has been more enjoyable for me upon rewatches is because where I was originally kind of affronted by Luke's old man Luke, um, because he's not what I expected to see. I expected to see, you know, badass Luke. I think rewatching it is what make is what that's why I'm enjoying it better because I understand why they went this direction with Luke's character. Yeah, I agree. Um, what what do you guys think of the Canto Bite sequence? What is Canto is Canto Bite the Casino the 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 yeah. the, the, Mo, the Moss Eisley remake? Well, see, I actually think that there's a reason why I like Canto Bite as a setting and there's a reason why i don't like the rest of the finn rose arc i think that in star wars in the past like we've seen you know like scummy uh, outlaw areas you know like moss Eisley cantina um and now we're seeing you know it before they go to canto bite uh it says that they're going to a terrible place filled with terrible people and so you're expecting another cantina scene with uh kind of like um outlaws but in reality it's like the one percent exactly you know they they take it in a different direction they they, instead of showing you the bottom of the universe they're showing you the upper echelon which i thought i to their credit i like that a lot i I really like that okay so the entire reason they go to that planet is to find the red lapel guy the master code breaker yes this is the weakest part of the movie because because it makes zero sense. sense okay so they facetime maz um even though she's like mid combat she uh, has no problem accepting the call. She's like, yes, I, of course I could do this, but I'm clearly occupied. So there's only one other person in the galaxy. Uh, he'll be hopefully playing at this, uh, at, at this card table. Like otherwise, like you guys are screwed. Um, but then mm-hmm. they get thrown into space jail for like a beach parking violation. And then luckily the first <laughs> prisoner they bump into is also has that very niche skill set and i I think the most obvious solution to this should have been maz is like oh look for uh benicio del toro and then they would be i don't know looking around for him say we can't find him and then they get thrown in jail for you know like space traffic and then and then there he is and then it's just like convenient you're exactly right i know it's a common complaint but i think it 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 required acknowledgement so i really like what they do with finn and rose just don't like that their whole quest is like you got to do this thing oh we can't do that thing oh well that's fine this thing is here anyways so now we can do this thing yeah oh we don't have that thing well it's fine this thing is here too oh well actually no like the the, and it's the the whole quest is supposed to be well, we get this code breaker and we're able to break into this thing, into the tracking thing, and they won't notice. So they'll be able to light speed um, or hyperspace or whatever the fuck. Like, they'll be able to um, jump. Yeah, without being tracked. But but the issue is they never solve that. Yeah, their, their, their plan ultimately fails. And so if they had done nothing, the result would have been the same. Which, which, I'm, which I'm okay with. If because a lot of this movie is about failure, like the whole the whole part, all Luke Skywalker's whole arc is based off of failure. I, I think one of the best scenes in the movie is the conversation with him and Yoda. But but, oh, but the problem is they don't necessarily gain anything by having failed at that. Like I'm okay I'm, on the whole, I'm okay with it because 
generally I'm able to excuse things not narratively making sense if they further character or emotional development. And I think it gives Finn an interesting arc, but I just have, that's that's my main issue with that arc. The thing is, the second they leave the ship, they fail every single task that they've set out to do, but they still succeed. They fail upwards. You know, they don't get the code breaker, but they find this replacement. They break, they do break into the, the code thing, but then the guy betrays them in, in, in a backstab and a twist that didn't even seem necessary because we didn't know him to begin with. I, the, what, what, I listened to the director's commentary before I rewatched the movie. And basically what Ryan Johnson said was he was very cognizant of what scoundrels are generally like with, in Star Wars, like with Lando and with Han. And we, we assume mm. them to eventually have a heart of gold. They will redeem themselves. And he liked the idea of somebody being true to their word, which I actually, I don't really mind. Well, no, he, he didn't even turn them, like he didn't sabotage their mission, but once they were caught, he told the, he told the first order that their plan was to use the escape pods and to, mm. uh, okay. Also it's such madness that even though like the um, resistance ships are visible from like the window of like the command ship for the first order, they're like oh like they're not they're not tracking yeah. like these smaller vessels like they're they're just focused on like the one remaining ship. Well, it's not even that they're not tracking them. It's kind of s- silly to say that they couldn't see them when they're that close. When they're I was going to say it know, isn't even like an issue of scanners where they could like slip beneath the surface. It just like oh look outside. It's like oh there's thirty escape pods leaving at once. I wonder what this could mean. My least favorite part of this movie is post storyline because it, oh. it it just adds like thirty to forty five minutes uh, like to the runtime to buy Rose and Finn time for their antics, and he's left out of the informational loop for no reason. My my issue with it is that okay, you want to give Poe an arc, fine. He's a He's essentially, he's too um, cocky and he needs to calm down to become a leader, which is fine, except it doesn't have anything to do with the overall thematics of the movie, in my eyes. Ray's whole thing with Luke is to try to get Luke to stop being apathetic and to be a force for good. That's kind of the same thing with Finn. Um, which is which is an idea that I like, where the same people that sell X wings are the same people that sell Tie fighters. Uh, it, it's, it's fine, you know. You can j- just stay out of it. There's no need to fight for it. And Rose is sort of saying, like, well, no. Like, the, the, a lot of people get mad about Canto Bite because they're like, well, it's a stupid mission that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And I pretty vehemently disagree with that because the whole point of that movie is that place is horrible because everybody is apathetic. Everybody just profits off of the suffering of others and they, that's it. And Finn's whole thing is that he isn't part of the First Order, but he's not yet part of the Resistance. He's still, everything he did in The Force Awakens was just because of Rey. Hence why he tries to jump ship at the beginning. Right, and so having Finn's arc be to get where he realizes, no, the fight does matter, that ties into Luke's arc of, well, no, I need to be a force for good. But Poe's arc is just sit down and take it when people are not making any sense. 
And it just has nothing to do with anything. And when you don't get your way, stage a mutiny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like this movie, but that's like one part of it that I really cannot defend. It's it's so stupid. Well, first of all, the resistance, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's like 400 people in the resistance. Like the orders of magnitude between the first order and the resistance are like immensely off. There's like 400 well, that's, people. That's the weird thing. At the end of this movie, there's like 12 people left. <laughs> yes. And also it seems like upwards of like 80% of the fleet is killed during every mission. And that doesn't seem like a, a sustainable army. I'm not asking for Star Wars to be, you know, some perfect display of what the military is or something like that. But Poe literally mutinied and he tried to overthrow the acting general. Like he probably would have been killed for that. You know, like or, or at least put in jail. But the other thing is, like, I can understand. I can understand why he did what he did, because she's making no sense. Like, like I could at least understand it if there was a legitimate reason for why Holdo would not tell was withholding him. information. And and like and like the thing is, what I when I when I go online, people that are like super staunch defenders of this movie are like, well, why would she tell him? He led to like most of their fleet being killed and was just a very cocky person but it's like well don't you think withholding information from him is just going to make him do more stupid shit he's a general he's well he was a commander and now he's a captain so poe is the same rank as luke was at in in the empire strikes back you know he was leading like uh some x-wing fighters you know he was like a red leader or gold leader or something like that but the thing is that poe's story there is contradictory to finn's story in the first movie um, and it's that Finn is like this low-level warrior who defies orders and does something better because he wasn't supposed to follow right. them. But like the thread in Poe's story is seemingly like, you know, shut up and follow orders. You know, sometimes people know better than you. You want to know who else followed orders? The Nazis. I don't think that's the pointness. I think that's what comes off. Like the point seems to be, well, sometimes it's better not to attack. It's better to live to fight another day right but yes but that only works if you're given like a legitimate reason or like like there is no plan there there's no reason for poe to think as a rational human being this makes sense because at the beginning at the beginning you can (laughs) kind of get like oh poe's in the wrong here poe just wants to get a small victory so when poe gets slapped by leia and it's like you're demoted like okay yeah that that makes sense but am I supposed to believe that Poe is in the wrong when the general is just saying, yeah, just full full speed ahead and not telling anybody the plan? I, I also think at the beginning, because Poe is like, oh, this is an opportunity to take out like one dreadnought. Like that's a fleet destroyer. But like, look at how many ships the First Order has. One dreadnought means nothing to them. And you're going to like sacrifice like. The Resistance doesn't even have, like, a fleet left to be destroyed, so they really need to, like, hunker down and, like, preserve their resources. Like, I don't know, Poe is responsible for the death of, like, hundreds of people. There should be, like, some weight to that. You know, can I I just air uh, a complaint I have about this? Anytime they're really trying to impress you and be like, wow, the First Order is serious, they're just like, what if we make the ships bigger? You know, like... There's a like when Snoke's ship is like 50 times bigger than a Star Destroyer. What the hell? Like, there's a certain point where it's no longer believable, like the the amount that you can just increase a ship to make it also even outside of the terms of believability, it it kind of becomes a bigger problem in Rise of Skywalker. But the the, the reason 
the reason that a Star Destroyer is intimidating in the original trilogy, in like that first movie, there's only one of them, but it's fucking huge. You know, like it's huge Mm -hmm. in comparison to the one like rebel uh, ship. So what what you get there is you get specificity, whereas you can show and now with computers, you can show literally anything you want because humans think in specifics. Mm. So like having just things be bigger, it doesn't mean anything like it, it like we don't feel that difference which is an issue. Yeah. You know, there's there's been a certain, like, uh, well, I see your Star Destroyer and I raise it one super Star Destroyer type thing through the throughout the whole series. You know, like, a Star Destroyer is what? Like, the size of a big city yeah. or something like that? Uh, and then the Death Star is the size of a moon. And then we get the Star Killer base, which is the size of a planet. And then we get these, the, you know, like, what is Snoke's ship called? The Supremacy? It's It's beyond imagination. I, I can't, I couldn't even compare it to something. I really, really love what it's trying to go for, and I think in most cases it succeeds, but there's a lot of little details that I can't really defend. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of, I say we address the elephant in the room while we're on the topic of ships. Holdo's Maneuver? Yes, Holdo's Maneuver is completely changing the definition of going into, like, hyperspace. The interpretation hitherto was it's entering some sort of wormhole and it transports you across the galaxy and i i wasn't there to question it but now it's just going really fast in one direction with this logic then with all the past death stars like why don't we hyperspeed the millennium falcon through the death star that would have been problem solved and now you can make that argument for every space battle from this point forward there there's definitely a logical gap here, but here's what I'll say in defense of the, you know, quote-unquote hold on maneuver, which I think they refer in, to it as later. Yeah. One of the original trilogy, Han says something about needing to do calculations before they yes. jump to hyperspace. I interpreted that as, you know, ensuring that our path does not take us through a star or something like that. It, at least to me, there's some amount of tangibility, you know, like, like you can... F- the ship isn't disappearing in one spot and going through another. And we see that because the people on the ship experience some amount yeah. of time, right? You know, they're not just disappearing one place and reappearing in another, at least in some cases. But still, that does beg the question, why would you ever use a laser if you could just have, you know, like some kind of unmanned ship who is sp- supposed to go through uh, a material? They've set a precedent that suicide bombing can be the answer to all future disputes. And I don't think they're going to honor it. That That's like exactly the reason ryan johnson gives um because they say something about like if you don't do your calculations right you can end up going straight through a planet or something um and so he said that was his justification for why it made sense it kind of creates the problem you have when you introduce time travel into a series Mm. it's like well now now why don't we just do this all the time but uh, it's kind of a thing where okay it's fine like i'm fine with it the 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 ship was never that that that's not a very sustainable strategy to have people kill themselves i can understand the issue it's kind of a nitpick it makes sense to use the holdo maneuver to go through the one big command ship split in half great but all of the other ships behind it explode also why uh you know I had that issue with it this time. It seemed as if, you know, maybe Holdo's ship is supposed to break apart. That's how I took it. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't really justify it in my own head. I, it, it, it was a pretty visual and a cool 
thing to look at, but I it, it didn't make all that. It much doesn't sense make sense, me. but does it? Is it that big of a deal? Like, does it really? Is that like really a big part of the narrative at all? Well, that's the thing. I think part of the reason this movie does leave like I want to like it, but it leaves a bad taste in my mouth is because there's all these little trivialities, um, incursions. There's all these little incursions about uh, upon what I think about Star Wars, and that is one of them. Parth, I can't follow you down the road of incursion isn't like central to the story. Then you're able to like turn a blind eye to it. Is I still think that at least this example alone is like absurd and like inexplicable. And like you shouldn't make creative decisions just because they look cool if it takes place in an entire universe i don't know that like plays by a certain set of rules the way i look at it is this is not a maneuver that's been done before it seems pretty self-explanatory don't know why anyone hadn't tried it earlier i mean everybody is very shocked when that happens so i'm just gonna chalk it down to it's not been done before or in recorded his like like so far as they know Mm. And I feel like the movie is way more about its characters and way more about what it's trying to say with, like, mainly Luke's story and Ray's story that it's, like, it's it's an annoying thing. Is it really that big of a... I'm not saying it isn't an issue, but is it so big of an issue that it, it goes through the uh, surrounding Star Destroyers that it takes you, like, so out of the movie it doesn't for me because because again it kind of it comes down to what i was saying like on my on the last episode of there's there's kind of two groups and you can kind of go in and in and out of both but the the two ways to look at star wars is through it it's it functions as any other film series and is about its characters and plotting and pacing and it's uh and the other way is the lore of well this is a whole universe and there's rules and established things like that and so like that's the sort of thing that really will bother people that really care about i'm not saying that's a bad thing but really care about how hyperspace and light speed and like the the specific ships and how all they work that's going to bother you way more if you're more into that than if you really don't care about that which i do you know, it, other than so, you're, so, what you're saying is that there are some cinematic in-universe things that may not, might not bother people if you're not too into it, right? But part of the thing that you know kind of left me with a bad taste in my mouth on this viewing is that there's a lot that the movie asks you to just like skip over. Uh, for example, the thing that comes to mind is when Snoke Snoke is killed, Kylo Ren kills him, and then like Ray and Kylo are in that room. Uh, they're just like there. And then the next thing we know, Kylo's like on the floor. Um, and he says that Ray escaped using uh, Snoke's ship. And then the next time we see Ray, she's just in the Millennium I'm Falcon so glad you brought this up. This like boiled my blood. Oh, Why? How, how did Wait. she get on the Millennium Falcon? It's not explained. <laughs> she probably has some sort of communication device so that Chewie can pick her up. But, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's so many points in the movie where they're like, where you in your head have to be like, well, she probably had this. Does it matter? Like, does it ultimately, I don't know. It doesn't ultimately take or give anything if I know how she gets there. 
Well, you know, just the way that it felt to me was like that they probably filmed the scene of her getting on the Millennium Falcon and then in the name of like pacing or the time limit or something, they just cut it and asked you to make the jump. Uh, for that reason, it feels a little jagged to me. That's all. It's not like it's it's again, it's not one big thing that ruins this movie for me. And not even that the movie is ruined. It's just that there's a, there's these tiny little things throughout it that that just kind of piss me off. Uh, Speaking of Finn gets his second love interest in this movie, Rose, and it is um, even though the, a, a romance with with Ray was established in the entire last movie, and then don't worry, in the next movie, due to uh, like audience reception, we're gonna sideline Rose and give Finn a new romantic interest. That is, and I count three romantic interests. I kind of disagree. I never, I don't feel like Ray is supposed to be a romantic interest for him. Par- Are you serious? I agree with Parth. I, I said this in the friends. last time. If they wanted to make him a, if they wanted to make her a romantic interest for him, when they reunited on Starkiller Base, they would have kissed. I agree. However, that does not stop this movie from having one of the most awkward kissing scenes I've ever seen. Are, are you talking about the, the Finn Rose kiss? Yes. I remembered it being more uncomfortable. Like, I agree that it's in poor taste because they just use the battering ram laser to like infiltrate their base and they're all moments away from death and this is no time for smooching. It, like at least it was brief. I guess but it looks like it looks like it was a like John Boyega didn't know it was going to happen. And not in like an intention, like not in an <laughs> intentional way where it's like he's caught off guard. It's sort of like he knows it's gonna happen. It just happened sooner than he thought it would. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it just felt so weird to me. You know, maybe this is out of bounds for the Last Jedi. But when I watched it this time, like it, it kind of reminded me of the, you know, the kiss between Rey and and Kylo at the end of Rise of Skywalker. It just it, it felt didn't like it came feel out of nowhere to me. I, I did not once see it as a romantic connection because the whole movie she's yeah. like Finn. Stop being a bad person. Leia and Han work because there are scenes of them displaying their attraction and or trying to like hide the fact that they're attracted to each other. And there's actual scenes devoted to their characters emotionally connecting with each other. Whereas you get Mm -hmm. none of that. And I really don't know, like the movie would have been perfectly fine with her not kissing him. So I don't understand why they had her do that. I, you know, I also, I appreciate the message that Rose delivers to him where she's like, the way we win this isn't by destroying what we hate. It's by saving what we love. I get like, that's a cool message. And I appreciate that. Wanted to subvert expectations. Like they would have let Ray, uh, dude, that's what I'm saying. You know, especially with like the somewhat minimal role he plays in the next movie. In in the last movie. I think this was his chance to like go down in history and, no, I just think as a creative decision, like it would have made more sense for him to sacrifice himself, and like that would have completed his arc. At the beginning of the movie, he was like he was a yeah he was running away, running away. and now he's learned some lessons, uh, gained some friends, and now <laughs> he, like like it just doesn't make sense like for his arc. Like, wait, no, that's such a stupid idea. Why would you ever? Uh risk your life for that that makes more sense for poe or or something like like yeah it doesn't make sense to for to say to finn wait no don't don't risk your life or or possibly sacrifice yourself because his whole arc is about 
learning that it's important. There are things more important than yourself. You know, that scene does kind of complete Poe's arc a little bit because, you know, instead of just beelining with the rest of the ships towards the thing, yeah, exactly. he calls them off. I- I've also kind of grown tired of, like, with Finn in The Force Awakens and now Rose in this movie where someone will get injured and then they'll say like some dramatic last words and then their body goes limp. And then you're like, oh (laughs) darn, like, is that character dead? How moving? And then literally like five minutes later, like they'll get like some medical professionals and they'll be like, I got a heartbeat. And then I'm just like, oh, so like they're fine. So like they'll show up in the next movie. Perfect. By adding Rose into the narrative and you don't, you don't even have to call her Rose just by adding like this fourth character into the narrative, you know, when you have these central three, letting either you know rose or poe or finn be the one that destroys that cannon would have neatly you know closed the loop or if if rose were the one to sacrifice herself yeah she pushes finn out of the way and then she does it and then by her sacrifice he's saving what she loves and also since this movie like was just gonna i know it was due to like reception and that no one wanted to see any more of her so they like left her out of all the misadventures in the following movie. But that wouldn't have even been a problem if you just killed someone. Here's my question. Do you think that it's justified to to dislike Rose? Like just from, you know, without being, you know, sexist or, or racist or something like that. Is there a genuine reason to dislike sure. her? I, I think there you can make the case for it. I don't dislike her. But you can definitely make the case that all she does is tell everybody that they're bad and then she like the i i like the idea of her saying no finn don't do that just we got to save what we love but it involves in execution her taking a ship and like angrily like bumping into him and that could have killed him too like that you, you can make mm-hmm. the case to say that like she's just kind of boring and kind of bland and doesn't have as much personality as uh finn or poe or ray but i i don't mind her i i just think her role like i have no qualms with like the character herself i just think it's or or the, the poor actress but it's just like the script she was assigned like i think anyone who would because poe in essence, is saving the remainder of the resistance. And Rose is coming in the in, like in the way of that. And luckily they find a like a, a back escape route. But if that weren't conveniently located, and then everyone dies because of Rose alone. That that's a good point. I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I like Zach your point of they needed to get people they needed to get it down to a trio because when you have, I mean, it ended up not mattering because they fucking shafted her anyways. But, <laughs> but like, you, you get this problem of there's just too much. And you, you, you could have had her sacrifice herself, and that's, like, the ultimate, like, thing for Finn. That could have been, like, shit. She, she put her money where her mouth was. And, like, that yeah. would give him forward momentum into the next movie. Whereas, I think the big problem I have with this movie is I think it's a pretty good movie that functions more as a standalone film than it does the middle part of a trilogy. Well, you know, it occurs to me, I'm just like looking over my notes right now. There's one thing so far, like way in the beginning of the movie that we haven't talked about yet. 
that that kind of really bothered me. It was actually the first red flag I had. Um, and that's the scene where Leia forces herself mm, back into the ship. I knew we'd we'd come to this eventually. It's time, gentlemen. Let's discuss. <laughs> Parth, I know you're probably going to come to its defense, aren't you? I would uh, expect no. nothing less. Uh, I think idea good, execution. Oh, it's awkward. And also, the the one good thing I think about the scene in its execution is just the score. I, I like John Williams' play, I think. That what the scene boils down to is that we needed to know, we you know, we needed a hint that Leia was a Force user, that she had received some training. That way she could train Rey in the following movie. That makes sense to me. I understand that now, having seen it. But, you know, the idea that she could, at the time, you know, the idea that she could just, like, be in space for like 20 seconds and not have her eyes ripped out of her head and then just like pull herself in as as an extension of that the lack of gravity like isn't a problem in this movie okay so with rose's sister at the beginning she's in the bomber vessel and the bottom of the ship is completely open and she's you know breathing well i was just gonna say i'm generally with movies like like star wars don't put too much stock into how space would reasonably Physics. affect a human body because there's no fire mm-hmm. in space there's there's no sound in space but yeah. so that part isn't like my problem with it it just looks so weird it just doesn't look it just does not it's supposed to be this beautiful moment and it just looks weird to me i, I know during my first viewing at this point carrie fisher had very tragically had yeah Died. and so yeah. my immediate thought was it's and I know that like the production of the movie had wrapped before she died. So like this had always been part of the plan. But it felt so odd to me that it seemed like this was like a fitting retirement of her character and they like brought her back and then just to like kill her again in the next movie when we know that the actress is already dead and then there's probably going to have to be like some well, some CGI like reincarnation. And it just made me uncomfortable. I think I, I understand why they did it now. Because I think it's actually really good that she became Ray's master. You know, like at no point did Luke really give Ray a considerable amount of training. It was always supposed to be Leia. But you know, another critique I have of that scene is that a few seconds later they say that all of their leadership is dead, including Admiral Akbar. I feel like Holdo's whole character would have gone over better had She'd been supplanted, or, you know, changed with uh, Admiral Akbar, a familiar face. Wait, are are you saying that you would prefer if like Admiral Akbar like played the role of Holdo because at least that's like an old leader that we're familiar with? When Holdo is first introduced, there's a scene where Poe says, "Wait, that's Holdo from this the Holdo from yeah. this or so incident." Yeah, from this at battle, like you wouldn't have needed to like introduce this background for her if you had already used this character whose familiar face we know and love. Admiral Akbar isn't really a character to me. I mean, he he has in Return of the Jedi, like he he's a meme. It's he's a trap part. He's, he's he's well known because we know Star Wars. He's not really a character in Star Wars, <laughs> like at least in the films. But, so I don't think like anything really gets changed point. other than fans would then be pissed that he was killed in a different way. And now for a word from our sponsor. Ah. <sighs> 
This is CEO of Coca-Cola, John Coca-Cola. My soda company has been making soda for several years now, so we know a thing or two about making soda. It's the summertime. You're probably parched. Quench that thirst with some of my aforementioned soda. We sell it at the grocery store and some other places also. It's healthy. It's nutritious. It's caffeinated. All I ask is that you purchase some of my famous Coca-Cola products and drink it. It's, it's finally come time to discuss the political elements of this film. There is social commentary. There's animal cruelty. There's child labor. There's socioeconomics. Let's discuss. Let me say something positive about it first. Uh, I think that the, you know, the, the child labor thing is interesting because they introduce these like characters who are like clearly abused and their children and stuff. And one of the themes of the movie is hope being mm -hmm. snuffed out. Um, and they need Luke Skywalker back to bring the hope back. And so the final scene where that, the, you know, the kids are retelling the story of Luke like facing down mm -hmm. all those ATATs, and then this is the first time I noticed it when he gets yelled at one of those kids and he goes outside mm -hmm. to start sweeping. Like he pulls the broom to him with the really, force. yeah, <gasps> yeah. This is the first time I noticed it, and I was like, "Wow, that was really good." It shows the next the next generation. It's very subtle. There's there you know there's hope left in the galaxy, and to that effect, I think uh, the children were useful. Would you call it a like? It's not like a post-credit scene, but it's like for a minute you're like, oh, like the movie's over, and then and then it's just a bunch yeah. of children just doing children stuff. <laughs> I, I actually I thought that was that was like one of the most effective scenes. In the I, movie. I I I really like the scene because the, the the idea that like Star Wars is as magical and as amazing to the characters in Star Wars as it is for people watching the movie. Yeah, that's so a good like, point. Like, like to yeah. Rey, Luke Skywalker is this amazing myth that she's heard stories of. And, like, it's it's this amazing thing. And then the reality is that he's this, like, broken man that's, like, in, in, in an immense amount of regret of his actions. And the the idea that, like, that stuff matters and that it is possible to give hope through, like, like myths and, like, like they matter... I like yeah. that because it's kind of like pe people gain something from that, you know, from from those stories. And but, yeah. so I think like the scene with the kids at the end, it does feel a little tacked on, but it, it kind of continues with that idea. Well, I, I think it also plays well into uh, the one of the ending scenes of Rise of Skywalker, the end of the trilogy, when all the ships from the, the outer rims of the rest of the universe come to the defense of the rebellion. You know, like that scene at the end of The Last Jedi is kind of like letting you know that their message is being heard. Yeah. They're just not sure. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's, it's... Um, so some this entire movie, different like scenes and set pieces were so reminiscent of like some of the greatest hits from the original trilogy. And I think most notably like the um, the. Oh, no. the yeah, the the throne room with Snow, Kylo, and Rey is pretty much beat for beat, like the Empire, Vader, and Luke. And when Rey is like, "Oh, I'm gonna go uh, confront Kylo," like there's still light in him. That conversation, and Luke is discouraging it, saying like, "You haven't had enough training." It's exactly the conversation that like Yoda and Luke have about like there's still being light in Vader. Well, uh, one of the things I picked up on this rewatch uh, 
is is kind of the foiling of Ray and um and Kylo is even better than I had previously thought because she is predisposed to the light side, but when Luke first gets her to touch the rock and feel the force, she immediately goes to the dark side. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, Kylo has tried to to apply himself to the dark side of the force under Snoke, um, but he but he doesn't blow his mother mm. up in that scene. That was actually one of the utilities yeah. of that scene, I thought, is that he knows his mother's on that deck, so he doesn't shoot it. Another example was, like, the cave sequence in Empire where Luke, find, like, he decapitates Vader, and then he's the one behind the mask, and he's like, oh, it's because of mm-hmm. my inner conflict. But I think Ray's rendition of her, like, ocean hole hallucination is she's like, oh, who are my parents? And then it's her. And I'm like, well, that, that's not even, like, symbolic in any way. She, like, she, it, she's, oh, not her, she's not her own parents. Let's make that very clear. The, the way that I took that was that she's searching for her parents because she's trying to kind of in a way where, like, everybody was like, well, who are Ray's parents? You know, who are they? Like, the audience, it's meant to be, it's more about finding yourself. And you don't need, it's not about finding other people to attach meaning to. Do you, do you think this movie knows who Ray's parents are eventually going to be? No. Yeah. No. Absolutely no. No way. Dude, Rise of, Rise of Skywalker really and I shit hate, on that. And I, I hate <laughs> that they did. Yeah, because I thought it was like so effective with Kylo was like, your parents were like nobodies, like you were nothing. And I was like, I was like, finally, yeah. like someone in Star Wars who isn't related to anyone, and they were just like, like they were just one with the Force, like this kid with the broomstick, like it can happen to anyone. And I was totally content with that. And then to like, yeah. and then to, to backpedal so far. One thing I like to credit this or this movie with is attempting to force Star Wars to do things that it's not yet done before. I think the fact that it repeats the throne room scene and like scenes like that, it's fine. If I'm okay with it in The Force Awakens, it's not like it's badly redoing it here. I'm okay with it because if Rey is related to somebody, right? And let's even go with she's related to Palpatine because that's what we end up knowing, right? That's ultimately the same exact inner conflict that Luke had. If kylo is a conflicted person and is reaching to become the into the dark side but can't help but feel the light and has snoke over him and we keep that until the third movie it's just darth vader again and what i like Mm -hmm. about this movie is what it attempted to do which the next movie then decided not to go forward with was create new dynamics that we haven't seen ray has accepted that her parents are nobody now she has to go on her own and kylo is now the man in charge but that ended up not happening. This movie sadly says goodbye to beloved characters Snoke and Captain Phasma. Captain Phasma, who was grossly overhyped and grossly underused. You know, actually, having seen The Mandalorian now, I kind of have more an appreciation for Phasma, only in the way that, like, when I first watched Captain Phasma get shot with a laser rifle and then have it bounce right off her, I was like, well, why doesn't everybody wear this armor that deflects lasers if lasers are the medium yeah of like every you know every stormtrooper should have this equipment if if it makes them impenetrable to attack yeah but you know now having seen the mandalorian at least in my own head i can say well maybe it was like this you know the metal that the mandalorian uses best beskar i think there's a logical arc 
in this movie where like Finn and Phasma are meant to be like enemies and how there's a wasted yes. battle in Force Awakens where Finn squares off with just like with a regular stormtrooper <laughs> kind of, and gets his ass beat. Well, that should have been Phasma. So and then this time when he defeats her, it shows some growth. But this is the first time they face mm-hmm. off and he trounces her and it makes that like rival it undercuts like their rivalry so to speak i agree and and also i I I think them doing away with like i think snoke was underdeveloped is like we were just beginning to find things out about like who he was and and now now he's gone I, I was interested uh, originally to hear more about Luke's relationship to Snoke because Luke knew of Snoke, you know, like he spoke to him and Snoke is the first dark side user in the movies. I think that we see who is not a Sith or at least who was not intentionally a Sith. You know, he was evidently puppeted by, by the emperor. So say what you will, but like ultimately one of the things about this movie was that Snoke and Kylo weren't Sith. Uh, you know, they were just dark side users, yeah. right? Uh, and, and it would have been cool to see Kylo be his own villain and then, you know, maybe eventually come back to the light side. But I guess that's more of a discussion. Here's a question. Why is Hux so loyal to Snoke? So I think that question kind of pulls uh, with it the question of, like, what is the relationship between Snoke and the First Order? Yeah. Yeah. To me, it seems like Snoke is this person who's either you know accrued this power as a warlord he's like a warlord who is a part of the dark side um who recruits the first order and thereby also recruits kylo but uh that relationship is never made clear in fact one of the like failings of this entire trilogy is establishing what exactly the first order means to the republic and it took me doing back information of my own to understand what's actually going on here in the original trilogy, it's very clear the Empire is an oppressive regime, rebels are rebels. And here it's, there's the resistance, there's also a republic, but they get completely blown up. And we have no idea how far-reaching the First Order is, we have no idea of what the political right. situation is like. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the Republic was peaceful, had no standing army, and Leia was a part of it. When she realized that the First Order was gaining strength, power, whatever, she started this resistance, but it was too late, and the the, the Republic was conquered. Is that Does that sound right? Sure. <laughs> you put more thought into it than the filmmakers did. I, I just, I desperately wanted it to make sense. That's something that the open, that's, that's what the crawl should have addressed. I, I don't think the crawl. I, I thought the, the crawl in the force awakens was like so effective in setting the stage because there'd been like a 30 year gap. And I, I, I yeah. uh, really obtained no new information from this title crawl. They were just, they were just like, yeah, we're picking up where we left off in the last movie. Okay. Yeah. Here, here are three paragraphs of text that uh, summarize uh, more or less things you know already. I thought The Force Awakens had a sense of humor that was very well executed and ingrained, and this movie had a lot of Marvel-style jokes that I felt were out of place. The, yeah, one of the, you know, like, the opening with the, like, the Your Mother mm. joke with Hux, I actually thought that was one of the more excusable displays. Because like, at least the- a joke. At least it was practical because he yeah. was trying to buy time. Yeah, you know, 
why is stalling like like the moral of this story like it, it comes up so many times they're like we need more time i guess i guess maybe because it takes place in such a compressed amount of time they're just constantly fighting for more yeah, it seems like a weird thing to bind yourself to you know as just as a story writer to say like well, I, it didn't. We didn't need to be this pressed for time, and it doesn't really create it, any it's, urgency it's as far as I can chase feel. The whole movie. Uh, here's my question. There's one thing that's been burning in my head. Can we? Do you want to? It's it's the force. Um, all right. I think that this movie kind of takes uh, the initiative to really kind of define what the force mm-hmm. is, or, or rather, what the relationship between the light side and the dark side is. Right. Yeah. Do, I, do I, you I, see where I I'm going with this? It was never really clear whether there was supposed to be like X amount of light side, X amount of dark side, or, you know, like if the balance was never identified, whether the, um, the dark side was something that tipped the scale out of balance or it was the thing that brought it all into yeah, balance. Do you see what I I'm agree. saying? And I think that this movie didn't commit either way, or at least this trilogy didn't commit either way. I think that this movie wanted to say the light side is balanced by the dark side. I've always found the concept of the light side and the dark side, even in the original trilogy, mildly confusing because what does that mean? Like to turn to the dark side, like to give yourself into the dark side. What does that one thing I kind of like that this movie does is redefine the force back into it's a feeling. It's sort of a it's an ethereal. It's not necessarily a physical thing like midichlorians or something yeah i i appreciate the lack of midichlorians in this movie i i but i would agree with you that this the trilogy brings up the idea of explaining it and then never really does anything with that well i think you know it's good that i don't think there's an answer i think you can interpret it either as the dark side is this perversion of what the force is supposed to be you know using it to gain power or you can see it as the other half. Yeah, and my interpretation is that this movie says that the light side can exist without the dark side. Right, because it, it brings Kylo Ren, or, or it brings Rey to check Kylo Ren, you know, the dyad and, and whatnot. Yeah, fair point. I think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that Star Wars as a story can only really be a simple good versus bad story. And the idea of good and bad not necessarily meaning dark side and light side and like, it be that being more complicated is something that in a Star Wars movie you I don't see them ever a- addressing, addressing that in any meaningful way. I think this movie comes closest to it. I agree. On a filmmaking level, this movie does some stuff that we've never really seen before. We see the same flashback yeah. three different times and three different ways. I, I, I like that like it's that. like each person's perspective. Doesn't Luke tell the first and the third version? He does. He leaves yes. out the beginning portion where he ignites his lightsaber. But I like that Kylo and Luke have different perspectives on how the whole situation went down. And it was just like their miscommunication that like drove them apart and caused the division of the galaxy. I think it's totally in Luke's character to act impulsively and to draw his lightsaber, but it's also in his character to immediately mm-hmm, regret it. And, and then, you know, he has to, he says he has to deal with the consequences of his hastiness. Now, something that I think was, you know, kind of also offensive to, to people who wanted more from Luke uh, is his is the end is his last scene you know when when he's done with the force projection what do you guys I think wasn't of that satisfied he... i don't think it was a proper send-off uh i i liked it i thought it gave him a complete arc trent i was with you originally i was like what he's just gonna die now 
But that, then I thought about it a little bit more. And what happened to Luke is pretty much the same exact thing that happens to Ben Kenobi. You know, there's a big parallel to Luke yeah. and Ben Kenobi because it's not like Luke just dies. I mean, he's gone, right? He's gone. They say he's gone. But it's not like he like the effort killed him. I don't think that's yeah, what no, it is. I, uh, Ryan Johnson says it's because he wants to go out on his own terms and he's able to do mm. that. Well, he does the same thing as Ben. You know, like Ben, at least in my understanding does not actually get hit by darth vader's lightsaber he sees that darth vader is going to strike him and then he becomes one with the force the same way that you know i, I don't know if you know all the yeah. background lore but the way that qui-gon Jin figured out yeah. how to do um so he chooses to become one with the force because he'll be more powerful that way sorry can you only become a force ghost if you like die on your own terms much like obi-wan and and all the people you've mentioned did or if you're a jedi and you die do you become so, a force ghost well that's the you know the, the background to that is that it was unheard there like there were no force ghosts before uh the parts of the story that we're familiar with but um when qui-gon Jinn dies he discovers quote-unquote the path to immortality or how to become one with the force and so he visits yoda at some point during the clone wars and he shares the secret with him. So, like, there are only, like, five Force ghosts. You know, there's... Qui-Gon Jinn becomes one. He tells Yoda how to do it. Yoda tells Ben. Um, and then there's kind of, like, this plot hole with how Anakin figures out how to do it and comes back as a ghost. But then, ultimately, I would understand that Ben taught Luke how to do it. And so he he determines that he can do more good now as a Force ghost than he can in person. I think the one problem... one One thing I would say is I just don't think this movie has a lot of forward momentum for the middle act of a trilogy and one thing you could potentially have done is to save luke's redemption for the third movie i, I think that's when you would expect it to come but then you yeah. get into the issue yeah. of is this about the new characters or about the old ones i i, right. I was that's... thinking about it and i was like huh i wish that one of like the big three of the new, of the new characters in this trilogy would have died um, because I remembered in the original trilogy like characters dying like that was a thing and then I thought back and I was like well they only killed Ben Kenobi and Yoda which was like the past generation like version only kills people from the generation prior of by killing Luke and Han and Leia. So I guess it's continuing the cycle, so I can't really critique it, because it's just, like, staying the course. I, I really liked ryan johnson's direction um i thought he was i think his camera work is pretty it was pretty close uh to the style that jj abrams had in force awakens like it's very active i thought there was some more interesting blocking problem i had with force awakens is that pretty much all the conversations take place in close-ups whereas here there was some variance a little bit more um and I just, I also thought there was a better use of production design. The, the one thing that stands out in my mind uh, from like a direction standpoint uh, is the inclusion of the montage on Luke's Island 
where Ray is quote unquote like feeling the force. Does this fall under directing? I thought it was good oh. to include. Um, and it was definitely the first montage, right? That that was ever in Star Wars. And I thought it was like actually like beautiful. I agree. You know, like they show uh, the grass growing and the island and the ocean and the dark side and the light side and how it all kind of like coexists. And, and That was very striking to me also. I was like, I, I like this, but yeah. it just does, it feels completely foreign to a Star Wars movie. It was oddly experimental. That's something I really like is that he kind of does film stuff. That's pretty like we we understand it. Like we've seen a lot of movies that do that, but it's not ever been in a Star Wars movie. Well, I'd say that people who die on the last Jedi hill, their biggest defense is that it quote unquote subverts expectations and it like breaks the rules and the patterns that every movie up to this point has set. I, I would rather like try something new and fail than just like keep like beating this dead horse. So I'm glad that Ryan Johnson was willing to take some risks and make some and make some like unpopular decisions. I mean, we don't even have a lightsaber fight in this movie. Lightsabers never clash. To that point, I thought that it was kind of weird the scene where Luke and Rey fight with like sticks. It feels like a lightsaber battle, but it's with yeah. sticks. I, I think the uh the throne room battle um with Kylo and Rey and killing Snoke and then all of the guards might be my favorite Star Wars fight scene ever. It's the wide angle and it's the blocking and it's elaborate fight choreography and i i just i think it's the best scene of this movie i think the best scene is luke talking to r2d2 aboard the millennium falcon what What, when they do the old hologram yeah i I think i think that it's super effective it like for the first time when i was watching it i saw that and i was like wow this feels like luke skywalker my favorite scene is probably on crate with luke and kylo dude that scene is undeniably badass that whole like the uh the set there that 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 scenery kind of sums up the idea of the movie right like on the outside it looks the same mm-hmm, it looks like yeah. hoth right but but once things start to happen you you know you see that this is this is a different thing entirely and there's the red salt underneath it or whatever yeah i thought that, i thought that was one little detail that like really elevated like the scene entirely we go to places that are not desert or forests um, which is yes. what the Force Awakens is pretty much comprised of, other than like I guess this on Starkiller Base. But like we got a casino planet, which in in story we get like our cantina scene with like all these costume designs and alien designs, and then we mm-hmm. get like a, a an ice hot type planet with like red undertones and things, which I liked. That's Star Wars is only guilty of that because. The original trilogies, like planets and sets, are so iconic that anything that even mm. resembles them, like later on, is going to feel like they're trying to recreate like fan favorites. Well, I, I kind of disagree because because it, with with the first one, that's kind of obviously I have a very small amount of budget. The whole planet is made out of sand. Like like I I, I can film in Tunisia. <laughs> Let's just make the whole planet that. But like. With 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 um, with Empire, you get Dagobah, you get um, Hoth, you get Cloud City, you get um, you know. So there, there's a healthy variety of stuff there. Um, the Return of the Jedi kind of falls back into Endor is all just a forest, and, and then and then they're back on Tatooine, which is where Jabba's palace is. Right, and like the Force Awakens kind of has both 
forest and just sand are, are pretty much the, the one thing I really like is the fight on Starkiller base because we've never seen lightsaber lightsabers in snow before. And that was pretty cool. But, that was cool. Yeah. I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, talk, talk Yoda for, for a minute uh, because Yoda. they, I think it's common knowledge that after this CGI distaste from the prequels, they, there was a puppet renaissance and they used the puppet again, uh, which I was ha- happy for, as I prefer um, practical effects. But I thought it looked strikingly different from the last time we saw Yoda, and it bothered me. It looked different, and it's weird, because they they said that they used the exact same mold. I, I, I feel like his speech pattern is different, too. Uh, I didn't notice that, but it was still a great scene. You know, he he destroys the tree. That's about as Yoda as it gets. <sighs> I was going to say that besides, like, the symbolism of, like, starting anew by, like, by destroying, like, the, the sacred text. Like, I, I, I understand it as, like, a storytelling device, but I I don't see why, like, Yoda would, like, want to, like, destroy like, the, the Jedi history. I actually think that's, in a small way, like, closing Yoda's own arc, uh, like, over the entire nine movies. Because, like... In the prequel trilogy, you know, say what you will about it, but Yoda is like a part of the problem. He's supposed to be like one of these wisest Jedi, but he's leading a war effort. You know, at at their core, the Jedi weren't about war. And so he's a part of the failings of the Jedi. And I think that's why it closes his own loop where he sees he's like, maybe the Jedi are not the be all end all of the force and of the light side and of teaching about it. Yeah, it was it was like acknowledging his own responsibility and that the Jedi weren't perfect. Yeah, no, you make you make a good point. I like it because Kylo Ren's whole thing is that you need to tear, burn down the past and that, um, you, well, in his own words, let the old things die. At the beginning, that's what Luke says too. He's like, the Jedi need to die. It's time for the Jedi to end. Um, and what I think this movie shows is that like Yoda says, mistakes will happen and people will be wrong, but that doesn't mean that it's the end of the world. Like that's Luke's whole arc is he made a mistake and he feels like because of that, he needs to be removed from the rest of society. But the real answer is to just keep like go on and learn from it. And so like it kind of ties into Kylo's whole arc of he doesn't want to learn. He just wants to keep going down his own path of destroying everything and so where luke is wrong is he's placing a lot of importance on these on like the history of things and yoda basically shows him well it's it's not about the history it's about learning from it and and like like you were saying zach like he he was himself part of that problem that led to the the fall of the whole republic and the rise of the empire and all of that shit so like it it all go it all falls into that and so there's there's this whole theme in this movie that like objects are not what matter but it's people and your ideas that matter like luke's lights or anakin's lightsaber gets torn in half rose is willing to give the the only memento she has of her sister um the jedi texts are burnt um and like so there's this whole thing that that's not really what matters what matters is there's people 
And so I like it because Yoda's saying that he needs to put his faith in people and not things, which I like. Burning the tree is the statement that's a, that acknowledges that Luke wanted to destroy the past or let it die, uh, let the Jedi die. Yoda's saying, let them exactly. evolve. And now for a word from our sponsor. Do you like food that doesn't taste particularly good? Do you like your meals prepared in the microwave? Are you an alcoholic who can be found at our bar drinking dollar margaritas at any given moment? Want to treat your family of 12 to a hearty dinner on a $40 budget? Well, you've come to the right place. Hear it from some of our own customers. I didn't hate that. At least it was cheap. And these sizzling fajitas are probably going to result in diarrhea. This is Applebee's speaking. Here to tell you to have an Applebee's afternoon. So, do you guys want to hear some fun facts? Let's hear them. Okay. I would love to. Joaquin Phoenix turned down the role that eventually went to Benicio Del Toro, which surprised me. The mm-hmm. movie was originally, forty-five between 45 and 60 minutes had to be cut from the, from, like, from the director's version, so it was originally about three and a half hours long. This is the first film in the Skywalker saga to not include the phrase, I have a bad feeling about this. But don't worry, director Ryan Johnson stated that the line is in fact present. It is said by BBA in the binary language at the beginning when he's a- attacking the dreadnought. Supposedly that's what BB-8's blips translate to. I thought that was some mumbo jumbo. What a, what a bunch of horse shit. He got a bunch of shit about it and he made that up. <laughs> you put it nicely. I, I, I have a lot of faith in Ryan Johnson, and I think he's a great storyteller, but that's just total bullshit. Yep. Moving on. The best advice Ryan Johnson received from the editors of The Force Awakens was, and I quote, in every single scene, shoot a cutaway of BB-8 and you'll never regret it, which I thought was most <laughs> evident when BB-8 was controlling the ATST and is like... Uh, I feel like BB-8 in this movie is too often an ex machina in that he's he's capable of too mm. much as an armless droid without uh, you know without that's what yeah exactly um, the creatures known as porgs are never actually mentioned by name on screen and also that porgs were serendipitous because the island they were shooting on had a bunch of puffins on it and they didn't want to have to edit them out so they just edited porgs over it which i thought was interesting um this is the first movie where peter mayhew uh isn't chewbacca because uh he was in very poor health and died shortly thereafter the opening weekend box office of this movie made more than all of ryan johnson's filmography combined um and in an interview, John Boyega, who played Finn, expressed a lot of disappointment with this movie, sharing some sentiments with Mark Hamill about some of the creative choices, but how it was out of their hands and they were just along for the ride. Is the director's cut available anywhere? Because I'd be pretty interested to see that, having discussed it. just early. an assembly cut. There's deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. It says that most of the cut material was just like like build-ups or the ends to scenes that are already featured, but the only scene that has been entirely cut 
uh, I will tell you about now. A scene that was in- completely omitted is one where Ray notices a ship docking near the village of the caretakers. Luke tells her that the party of marauders that raid this place once a month, he, ur- he urges her not to intervene, explaining that it is part of the between good and bad that the Jedi are supposed to respect. Ray ignores him and goes to the rescue, only to find out that the marauders are a different tribe that have simply come to party. Luke admits that he wanted to test her, as he believes that the galaxy is in more urgent need of Rey's willingness to take action than the Jedi's way of keeping balance. I could see why they ultimately cut that. It, it, when, you, when you read that it was another tribe coming to party, I was like, that's a joke, right? In, 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 the, in the director's uh, commentary, he says that there was a lot more intercutting between the storylines, but then in editing... Um, they realized that they could play each storyline a little bit longer. So a lot of the scenes that were cut were cut because it, it no longer made sense for them to be there. Do we want to assign ratings now? I think the time has come. I think so too. Oh, I guess I'll go first. I gave The Force Awakens a 7, but I'm going to give this movie a 5.5. That's higher than I thought you'd give it. If you asked me... A week ago, I would be more in, like, the three or four range, but the redeeming qualities have shown through, and I think I'm willing to look past some of my nitpicking because um, there are elements of this movie I thoroughly enjoy. Um, But uh, I still think that The Force Awakens is stronger. Well, I have to agree with you. Uh, I think The Force Awakens is stronger, and going into it before I watched it this time, I was going to give it a five and a half out of ten. Now that we've like, uh, now that I watched it again and we've discussed it, I, I would give it a six and a half. I agree that the Force Awakens is a a more smooth movie uh, with like less problems, but I'm gonna give this an eight out of ten, like for sheer ambition. Um, well, since it seems our time is running out, um, our next episode is gonna be on the Five Bloods, which is the Spike Lee movie getting released on june 12th thank you for your time everyone thank thank you to our guest zach thank you uh to jackson marino who did our cover art thank you for to nathaniel johnson who did our intro opening musical jingle thank you to michael shamming who made our outro jingle thank you to kurt for being our Our interview and for Sophia Alexis for creating our opening bit. Goodbye now.